we gather in the name of the Lord of the Armies today, I want to keep up that patriotic spirit and have all of our veterans please stand. We want to express our warm thanks and appreciation to you. Come on, don't be shy. Stand. Thank you. Thank you very much for your service. And we recognize when anyone enlists in the armed services, they have already put their life on the line and at the disposal of our freedom. And so we're very, very grateful for that. And all of us who serve the Lord should have the same spirit. We should be grateful if we have the privilege of giving our lives in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. Gratitude would be what I would express for that great privilege. And speaking of that, I want to thank the speakers from our little phalanx here. In my absence, I told you we'd have a surprise. And I think that one of the surprises with Paul Matthews, I got this inkling that I better call Paul. And uh, I caught him. He was out in the woods somewhere. Cell phone didn't even work really well. But I said, would you do the 21st? And he called back later. And you could hear the crows flying over and everything. He said, I'd be happy to. And he brought what I consider to be a historic message to our phalanx, summarizing and bringing a summation of so many of the glorious insights that God has granted us and did it very well. You can see the fruit of his study. He and Colleen have been so faithful for decades leading our Sunday school. And Paul has been studying his brains out. And part of him and Pastor Affelder have been putting together the curriculum for the children. And you can see the fruit of that in one of many surprises. Both Brian and Craig Brown, I just noticed on the way down as I was meditating on their messages, Brian Messick and Craig Brown, our resident pastors, that the theme that they have been holding throughout all of their guest speaking or their speaking engagements here has had to do with the throne of God. Craig's with the glorious high throne from the beginning as a place of our refuge, and Brian's, and they both brought these back home after pretty much years of teaching on the subject. Brian's about the throne and the footstool, And they both came together in a glorious way to glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Emery Persinger, our embassy marine, also brought a, I think, a profoundly pastoral heart-to-heart message in which he lifted, I think, if you listen carefully, lifted up any listener from what we call our condemning hearts. When our own hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and that's one burden that a pastor always has for his audience. And also, leading into my message, Professor Tony Sadar consented to speak and gave us a pure and lively glimpse into the Father's heart as he spoke on the Father and freedom and faith. And I'm going to take up that mantle today and bring on the first of many messages on the subject simply called, What is Faith?, what is faith? And we'll be beginning that in a moment. A couple more items, though. You can tell I've been away for a couple of days. And I did study every day, incidentally. I'm here to salute and say I'm still working for you. I studied every day, way deep into Galatians, so I hope I can recall Romans. 
But we have today a special person from our phalanx from way out, speaking of California, and that's Sherry Walker. Sherry, would you please stand? We want to just give you a warm reception today. Her and her husband, John, have been and family have been faithful to this ministry for many, many years in every way and serving and giving and receiving the word. And so she's very much a part of our phalanx and welcome, welcome, welcome. It's good to see you, Sherry. And finally, we have our famous 2018 Treasures for Children campaign beginning. We will be collecting new toys for the New Kensington branch of the Salvation Army all the way through December 10th. And the Salvation Army requests, and I regretfully do this every year, no toy guns or knives. And uh, so, sorry about that. My first toy, I wore my dad's fatigue hat. I was two years old. My first toy was a gun that shot ping pong balls, much to the chagrin of all visiting relatives and friends. So, anyways... And my favorite Christmas present, that it was just like that movie Christmas Story, only mine was a 20-gauge shotgun, not a BB gun. And I, we opened all our presents, and I was like, yeah, hey, hey. And then I looked on the way out into the kitchen in our home, and I saw, leaning against the wall, my father had leaned a 20-gauge shotgun. And I was like, wow, best Christmas ever. And so much for guns. But it is Veterans Day. And we thank God that guns have been at the disposal of our military services, or we wouldn't be here today, at least not speaking English. So let's take a look. We may get to Isaiah 52, and so if you want to be kind of perched there, we'll get there. What is faith? Now, faith is a very important consideration, especially when you consider Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. And that in the gospel, there is revealed or apocalyptically revealed, invasively revealed, apocalyptically revealed, the righteousness of God from faith to faith. And we looked at that a lot. But what is faith? Just what is faith? First of all, there's going to be three parts. The first part is faith as perception. And this is going to be more and more directed toward our involvement with God's apocalyptic invasion of this evil age, our involvement, our recruitment into it, our involvement into it, in which we say to each other in 2 Corinthians 7, 3, we both die and live together with you. We die first and live together with each other. And faith then as perception is the first part. It is the divinely gifted means of perception of otherwise invisible realities. Secondly, and incidentally, that goes back to the last message I preached here, number 100 of Romans, faith is the means of perceiving, understanding, grasping, comprehending, however you want to see it, of the great deed of salvation that's been done by God. For example, that's one thing that we perceive by faith. Secondly, and we'll move into this in subsequent messages, faith as participation, specifically a sharing in the fidelity of Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle 
said that his goal was having received grace and apostleship to bring all the nations to the obedience of faith, which also brackets all of Romans, Romans 1, 5, Romans 16, 25 in the last doxology. So faith as participation or as a sharing in the fidelity of Christ. Thirdly, and this is the most important by far, faith as Jesus Christ himself and his faithful death. That's a great term that we will be dealing with, Christ's faithful death right at the heart of the heart of the center of the X-ring of Romans is God not sparing his son, but freely handing him over on behalf of us all, of us all, of us all. For God is for us, and if God is for us, who can be successful against us? So today, faith is a means of perception or a way of perceiving. For we walk by faith and not by sight, Paul announces in 2 Corinthians 5.7. This is the reason for his confidence about death, his confidence about facing death. In 2 Corinthians 5.6 and 5.8, right? Bracketed in there is a parenthetical phrase, for we walk by faith and not by sight. That means that we find our way through this life, navigate it, if you will. This life in our body, in which we are absent from the Lord, as long as we're in this body, we're absent from the immediate presence of the Lord, where he is seen. But in this life in the body, we navigate not by what our eyes see, but what by what we perceive with faith. In other words, we proceed not by outer lights, but by inner insights. A ship navigates by outer lights, and we navigate through inner insights. The explanation for what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 5-7 is found in 2 Corinthians 4-18. We focus, he says, using the word that we get our word scope from, scopeo, We focus not on what is visible and temporary, but on what is invisible and interminable, unending, permanent, perpetual. Not on what is evanescent, but what is everlasting. Faith focuses on invisible and everlasting things. What is invisible and indestructible is the reality, capital R, that Jesus Christ is. I'll say that again. What is invisible and indestructible is the reality that Jesus Christ is as the reconciliation of God with the world of human beings. Jesus Christ right now is the reality. He is the reality of the reconciliation of God with the world of human beings, already realized in that one great act of salvation, which Jesus announced by saying, Tetelestai. What is invisible and indestructible, then, is the reality that Jesus Christ is as the reconciliation of God and the world of human beings, all human beings in all times. We may say that faith is the God-given means, and this would be my definition. We may say that faith, biblical faith, is the God-given means of, 
or way of perceiving the reality that is Jesus. Faith is the divinely gifted means of perceiving the reality that is Jesus. I'm not speaking only of the historic or the historical Jesus, which men went on quests for in this past century. I'm talking about the Jesus who is the reconciliation of God with all things and in whom God will, and in one sense already has, summed up everything savingly in him. When we walk by faith, as Paul put it metaphorically, means we are perceiving everlasting realities that are not visible to the physical eye. We navigate, once again, not by stars, but by insights or by understanding. Insights collectively become spiritual understanding granted to us by the Spirit of God. So we perceive, and this is extreme of extreme importance, we perceive by faith not just what happens in history or in current events as they unfold before our eyes. We perceive not just what happens in history, whether worldwide, nationally, locally, or in our personal and familial lives. We perceive what has happened in the Christ event. We don't perceive just what is happening. We perceive, far more importantly, what has happened in the Christ event, that event being the incarnation of God in the flesh and that incarnation followed by a life in the days of his flesh culminating with his passion, his crucifixion, his faithful death, burial, resurrection, and elevation to the highest of the heavenly places where he now sits advocating for us at the right hand of the Father. We do not perceive just what happens in history or in current events as they unfold. We always perceive what has happened in the Christ event. Perceiving what has happened in the Christ event, we also perceive that the impact of that event is the reconciliation of all things, the saving summation of all things in Christ, the making of all things new. This faith perception leads necessarily to the perception, call it the comprehension, the understanding, somewhat of a grasp of, grasp is a good word. This faith perception leads to the grasp of the love of God in Christ Jesus, that we may know the love of Christ that passes knowing. That means passes any other way of knowing except faith perception. In Ephesians 3.19, it's very important that the love of Christ or the love of God in Christ Jesus is understood in its totality. It cannot be known, as Ephesians 3.19 says and implies, the love of Christ or the love of God in Christ Jesus, as Romans puts it in Romans 8.35, the love of God in Christ Jesus cannot 
be grasped, understood, or perceived by any natural or technological means, by scientific investigation or philosophical speculation. For the source of the Christ event is the love of God. And because people accuse God of not being loving, it's because they do not perceive the love of God in Christ Jesus, in the Christ event, and are not therefore assured of hope for things as a result of that event. And they can't be blamed because without an insight, people are ignorant and have to act in ignorance to act the part of their ignorance. So we don't blame, accuse, or condemn. After saying we walk by faith in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, the continuity of this is remarkable. After saying we walk by faith in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul said, for the love of Christ controls us. He goes from 5.7 to 5.14. We walk by faith, for the love of Christ controls us, he then says. We have a faith here working by love, or working from love, or working within a dynamic state of love. The work of faith is God's work. The work of love is God's love. So, why does Paul say the love of Christ now controls me? He says, because I have judged this. I've come to this determination after reflection on the Christ event. He said, the love of Christ controls me because I have come to this determination that if one died for all, and he certainly did, then all died. Now, how does that connect with the love of Christ controlling the man Paul? And that love of Christ controlling a man is his primary, primary qualification for ministry, incidentally. Do you love me, Peter? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Then feed my lambs. The love of Christ controlling us. When Christ died, all died. When one died for all, that's the Christ event, then all died. So why does love control Paul? Because by faith, he has perceived that the Christ event has reconciled the whole world of human beings to God. 2 Corinthians 5.19, follow the logic. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. When Christ died... All died, all without exception. And we've already noted that according to Psalm 143.2, which is enormously important in Romans, cited in 3.20, and enormously important in Galatians, alluded to in Galatians 2.16, in a very pivotal verse. No one living, it says, can be justified in God's eyes. No one living. The psalmist wrote, in Psalm 143.2 or Psalm 142.2 in the LXX, the Septuagint, do not enter into judgment with your servant because no one living can be justified in your eyes. Think of that. What did God's love do? He knew that no one living could be justified in his eyes, so all died when Christ died. 
So when Christ died, the scripture says he was handed over for our sins and raised up for our what? Our justification. We're justified because we died, not because we're alive, because no one living can be justified. When Christ died, all died to be justified. And so in resurrection, he gave life to all humankind. That's why Romans 5.18 says, justifying life or the justification that is life comes to all human beings without exception, even as death spread like a contagion to all men through the sin of Adam, the false step, the trespass, the disobedient act by the one obedient act of Christ, justifying life came to all. But you see, it's faith that perceives this, not just reason. Reason can, can help. In fact, there is a reasonable way to explain God's universal salvific event in Christ. There's a re, you can appeal to reason and get there. But only by faith perception can you understand that God gives justifying life to all humankind. And the universal horizon of the death of Christ is only perceptible by faith. That's why I'm talking about what is faith. And so God, who is love, God, who is love, in his total love, saw to it that all died when Christ, his son, died on behalf of all. No one alive can be justified in God's sight and stand before him rectified. Nobody alive you can say that yeah then you're not justified and I would say yeah but I died and my life is now hid with Christ in God but I can say that for all of you our lives is are hid with Christ in God and when Christ appears in glory we will also appear with him in glory surprise oh it'll be a surprise all right especially when people appear with him in glory that you never dreamed would appear with him in glory. But you might not recognize them because they won't be the jerk that you remember them to be anymore. So, now then, no one alive can be justified in your sight, God, and stand before you rectified. Literally, it says, literally, all flesh shall not be justified in your sight. All flesh means all living human beings. But it ultimately takes in all of creation, of course. So, because no one living can be justified in God's eyes, God demonstrated his love in Christ's faithful death, which was the death of all flesh. He became flesh, and he became sin as he became flesh. He became sin at the cross on account of our justification. His death was the death of all flesh, all human beings. So he was delivered up to the cross for our sins and raised up from death on account of our justification being secured by his death. Romans 4.25, shoot an arrow from there to 5.18. That means that his death or his faithful death had accomplished justification for all humanity and that his resurrection meant life for all humanity. For as in Adam, all die. But in Christ, all 
will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. So Paul makes this explicit in Romans 5, 9, where he says, we have been justified, there it is again, by his blood. The justifying act is a divine act in Christ. The justifying act is the faithful death of Christ, not our human believing, not a human act, whether of works or of believing, but a divine act. What God is always showing the distinction in Galatians and Romans, especially Galatians where it gets even hotter, it gets really hot and the debate there gets really intense. And Paul's rage as an apostolic prophet is phenomenal there. The real distinction is not between a justification by human faith versus a justification by human works, but a justification by a divine act versus any human act at all. That's what faith perceives. Faith is a gift from God that perceives that reality. So until someone is gifted with faith, you can browbeat them all day long and not convince them. Only God can convince them. Only God convinces as Philippians 3.15 says. And so Christ's blood is what justifies us. That blood is a metonymy for his faithful death and where he says we have been justified by his blood in Romans 5.9, we have been therefore ultimately saved from any wrath, any supposed wrath of some last judgment. And what we've learned is the last judgment is past. It was the Christ event where the judge came to be judged on our behalf. Faith perceives the last judgment to be a past reality. Faith perceives it. Not reason, not philosophy, not science, not technology, no matter how advanced. Not even your brand new iPhone can get it. Because the most that that can be is all about I. So then, again in Romans 5.18, he says explicitly that through the faithful death of Christ, which is here referred to as one act of righteousness, justifying life belongs to all human beings. Any argument against that is an argument of unbelief. These are the unseen realities that are summed up in Jesus and that are perceived. That's the thing. Faith is perception. Not by viewing what is seen or visible. Not even by viewing the so-called historical Jesus and studying the historical events. And they're real. They are real, of course, because in history, Jesus Christ died. You can't just watch a movie about Jesus and get these truths. These truths are the implication of what he did on the cross. And so the unseen realities that are summed up in Jesus and that are perceived or understood not by viewing what is seen or visible, but by viewing with a different set of eyes what is unseen to the human eye and unknown to human speculation. The love of Christ controls us because what we perceive I'll say this in a different way. The love of Christ controls us because of what we perceive by faith through the Spirit. We through the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5.5. 5. So faith works. Notice it doesn't say we work. 
What must we do to do the works of God, said his disciples in John 6, 28. And Jesus said, believe on the one whom he has sent. That's the work of God. Meaning faith is the work of God. Faith involves God's work, not ours. Faith works within a dynamic state of love in Christ Jesus. And this is, as Tony brought up very well in Galatians 5, 6 and 5 and 6, 15. This is the so-called rule by which we walk, Galatians 6.15, as what I call hyper-conquerors through him who loved us. We are hyper-conquerors through him who loved us, Romans 8.37, piercing the heart of Romans. Hyper-conquerors, more than conquerors, through him who loved us. Christus Faber, Christ the Builder. Prophesied by Tony again, Christus Faber, Christ the Builder. I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, which summarizes all the adverse apocalyptic powers against it, will not prevail against it. Hyper-conquerors. Hyper-conquerors. Hyper-conquerors have what is known, and we've spoken of it before. It was a term coined by Nathaniel Brandon, a famous psychologist, and taken up by Colonel Theme, and I learned very much from that, called cognitive invincibility, unbeatable mental attitude dynamics, cognitive unbeatability. I am persuaded, Paul said in his cognitive invincibility, persuaded that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not terrorism or its threat, not violence or military conquest, not belligerent forces, angelic, demonic, or human, not things in the past that come up to bite us, not things in the future, not things impending, not things above, not things below. Nothing, nothing shall be able to sever us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's called cognitive invincibility. It's rooted in the passionate philanthropy of the triune God demonstrated in the Christ event. It fears nothing. It fears nothing. It is a spirit of love and power and a sound mind, not of timidity, hesitancy, fearfulness. Perfect love drives out all that stuff called fear. The love of Christ controls us because of what we perceive by faith through the spirit. That's why we come to church. That's why we gather around DVDs. That's why we gather in small groups, and that's why we converse in the Word. So faith works within a dynamic state of love in Christ Jesus, and this is God-approved living. Bernard Lonergan, who really set me off on some of these things a while ago, I first got the inkling of the universalism of God's salvation through something he said while he wasn't intending to teach it. And he was teaching on the problem of evil at the end of what he called facetiously, my little book, Insight, not a little book. took me about a year to get through it. But at the end of Insight, he saw faith in an unbreakable connection with love. Near the close of what he called his little book, Insight, he wrote this, quote, considered in themselves faith, hope, and charity, constitute an absolutely supernatural living 
that advances towards an absolutely supernatural goal under the action of divine grace. Reading that book was worth it just when I got to that sentence in page 762. Moreover, for him, Lonergan, faith is the means of perceiving what he called the expression of the totality of God's love. That was another thing that struck me. Faith is the way that we perceive God's total love, the total horizon of it, the depth of it and the height of it, the height and the depth of it at Calvary, the breadth and the width of it in its universal impact, perceived only by faith. Faith has a value that you cannot tabulate or calculate, and it's always a gift. It's always elicited, or even we could say, daringly, even created by God in us. And this is extremely important. This is where we get into God-approved living. This this is where we begin to live it. By the end of this message, we're already living in it. It's walking by faith. It has the power to evoke this faith, working by love. This totality of God's love and this perception is also in accord with a very important verse in Hebrews 11.3, which says, by faith... We understand. Look at just those words alone. By faith, we understand. The perceptivity of faith. That's why I go first to faith as perception. By faith, we understand. And he uses the word piste here, which is in a certain way, P-I-S-T-E-I. Piste means by faith, because it's a dative of means, or a means of, so faith becomes a means of perceiving. Perceiving here is noeo, which is sort of like the word that is found in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, noeo, but it means to perceive, to understand, or gain an insight into, according to the Gingrich lexicon. The verse goes on in Hebrews eleven three. To state that faith perceives something remarkable, for example, that the ages, aeon, were designed or arranged literally by the spoken word of God, the invisible word of God. What did he mean by the ages were arranged or designed by what isn't seen, the rhema, the spoken decree of God? It means that God arranged two cosmic ages in order. First, the evil age in which Adam controlled humanity's destiny, and then secondly, the age of Messiah in which Christ controls the destiny of all humanity. And the break between those ages is the cross of Christ, the axis between those ages. The axis is the cross of Christ. God arranged the ages. Faith perceives this. The evil age, Galatians 1.4, and the messianic age, which has invaded that age, for Christ died for our sins in order to deliver us from this present evil age. Faith perceives two ages, a two-age cosmology. And this hasn't been the interpretation of most Hebrews commentators, but it says, by faith we understand that the ages, that's the two ages, have been designed in their particular order and sequence by an utterance of God. And that's an example of what is visible to perception of faith. 
It's not visible to the human eye. But what we do see in the clash of the ages that is visible to the human eye in the outline of history is an example of what's behind that is a reality of an apocalyptic warfare that's ongoing. And so blessed are you if you are a veteran of the service of your Messiah in that war. Because the congratulations for fighting in that war are yet to come when the Lord, the righteous judge, gives you a crown of righteousness when he appears. And to all those who love his appearing and who anticipate it with joy. And so the verse goes on to state that faith perceives that the ages have been designed in their particular order and sequence by an utterance of God. And this is an example of the reality of what is visible to the human eye has its origin in something not apparent to the human eye. So faith is the means, the way, the agency, the instrument of perceiving not only God as creator, but God as love. Faith is not only the means of perceiving, understanding, comprehending God as creator, but perceiving God as love, love in his essence, love in his act, his ongoing act demonstrated in a marvelous way and in the epitome way in the zenith in the Christ event. For as 1 John 4.16 says, and we have come to know, this time the perfect active indicative form of the lemma, ginosko, another word for perception, ginosko, G-I-N-O-S-K-O, ginosko. We have come to know, by faith we perceive, we have come to know, ginosko. And as Paul says, we walk by faith, we perceive by faith, and we know by faith. First John, again, 4.16, very important verse. We have come to know and to believe or have confidence in the love that God has for us. Philanthropy, his love. And God is love, he says in 1 John 4.16. God is love, and the one who abides in the love that God is abides in God who is love. And so the one who abides in God abides in love, and the one who is, abides in God who is love, and therefore God who is love abides in that person. And so the fruit or the result or the effect of abiding in God is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love because God is love. A person who says that he or she abides in God but who does not love is not abiding in God because God is love. And the fruit of the indwelling Spirit of God is love. Now, we're already gone from first to fourth gear. And I know this because when my father got mad at me, he drove a 61 Impala. And it was uh, what we call three on the tree. And if he was really mad at me, when he took off back to work after yelling at me for the whole noon hour because he caught me smoking when I was only 11, he would then 
start off in third gear. He'd put it right in third gear and burn rubber till he was already in third gear going back to the post office. And uh, then I would be fearful all afternoon because he was going to come home for supper. And then I was going to be asleep or out running because he would then go to the racetrack and work at the racetrack until midnight. And then hopefully his wrath would have abated. But I remember him going right from, in fact, he wouldn't go to any gear. He just went to third. He'd drop it right down into the third and then stomp on it until he got going. It was weird. I got to ask him about that someday. Why'd you do that? And he would say, because I was so damn mad at you, you idiot. But anyways, I quit smoking from that day until I was 15. That's how much power that had. So I've said all that to say, we're in third gear now. Consider two verses. Isaiah 52.10. Deutero Isaiah, and I'll close with this, but from Isaiah 40 through 55, 16 chapters, that it's a book in itself. Deutero Isaiah, the second Isaiah it's called. It's altogether different from the first 39 chapters, and it's altogether different from, although it hangs together in a unique way, it's different from 56 through 66. Trito Isaiah. Deutero Isaiah is the most important segment of Scripture that carries us through to the New Testament. It carries us through to the New Testament. It's really the bridge that carries us through to the New Testament. In two passages, Isaiah 52.10 says, The Lord will apocalyptically reveal. And this, again, is so critical to Romans. You see, we're seeing what Romans is by saying what is faith and what is reveal here. We know this word. It's apocalypto. Apocalypto. And it's the word, which is the key word in Romans 1.17. The righteousness of God is apocalypto. Apocaly- Sometimes people drop the U down to a Y, so you have apocalypto, like Mel Gibson's movie. Apocalypto. And so we have the Lord will apocalyptically reveal. It's the future active indicative form of the Greek verb apocalypto. He will reveal, future, his holy arm. The idea here is the bearing of an arm. Back when men used to settle their differences with fisticuffs rather than maligning each other over social media like little girls, they used to bear their arms, roll up their sleeves, have it out. And when they did, it's a strange thing. They became the best of friends after that. I don't, under, I don't advocate it. I don't advocate it. I don't advocate it. But they bore, they bared their arm. They were ready for battle. And I saw this happen more than once where two people had it out. I do not advocate it. Please remember this. Don't tell your kids I advocate it. I don't advocate it. But I've seen the results of sometimes settling matters this way as two guys becoming the best of friends. And I only say guys not because I'm a sexist, but because I never saw two girls do it. That's all. It's no problem. But I'm sure that's happened. But in any case, or a girl and a guy, I did see a girl beat up a guy once, but that was, he never forgot it, and still in his 60s never will. But the point is, God bared his arm. I will, the Lord will, apocalyptically bear his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. The sight of all the nations. All the nations will perceive the bearing of God's holy arm. 
in what? Gaining victory over the apocalyptic forces of evil, sin, death, Hades, call it what you will, its gates won't prevail. His holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation, soteria, another word, Romans 1, 16, the salvation, the power of salvation is in the gospel. They will see, notice this, in the sight of all the nations and they will see the salvation that comes from our God. See, horao is almost always related to not just perception but experience. They will all experience his salvation. Now the Lord who will, according to that future prophecy before the cross, the Lord who will apocalyptically expose his holy arm in the sight of all the nations has already bared his holy arm in the crucified Christ whom he raised from the dead and elevated on high. Men elevated him on high on a cross. God elevated him on high on a throne. And the throne and the cross both meet in the Christ event, as we'll see. So, this is perceived. God's holy arm being apocalyptically revealed is perceived now by those in whom God has gifted with faith. And the salvation that comes from our God that all the ends of the earth will see is even now perceived by the eyes of faith. That's what you're seeing. Gradually and imperfectly. Faith perceives the total expression of God's love. It perceives the height and the depth of it in Calvary and the breadth and the width of it in its universal saving influence. The breadth and the width are represented by the outstretched arms of Christ outstretched to embrace the whole of humanity. It is a reconciling posture that men unknown to them presented him in by nailing him to the slats of wood that make up a Roman cross. So, faith, faith perceives God's holy arm. It is perceived only in those whom God has gifted with faith. And the salvation that comes from our God, that all the ends of the earth will see eventually, is already even now perceived by the eyes of faith. May I say to you, blessed are your eyes. For they see things that prophets have wanted to see, things that kings and queens like the Queen of Sheba traveled hundreds of miles over dangerous terrain to see. And she only heard Solomon, but a greater Solomon, greater than Solomon. Is Jesus. Blessed are your eyes, the eyes of faith, for they see. So faith perceives the total expression of God's love, the height and the depth of it in Calvary, the breadth and the width of it in its universally saving influence. Without faith, it's not only impossible to please God. 
It's also impossible without faith to grasp and comprehend the height and the depth, the breadth and the width of the love of God in Christ Jesus, the totality of God's love. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, another continuity in the scriptures, Paul prays first, first he prays, 316, that you may receive strength in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. Christ will reside, then he said, in order that Christ will reside in your hearts at home by faith. First he prays that Christ will reside at home in your hearts through faith. Then he prays in order that you would then come to perceive, comprehend, or grasp together with all the saints the immeasurable dimensions of the love of Christ, and be filled up with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3.19, 3.18 and 19. And to be filled with all the fullness of God simply means to be all filled up with the full formation of Christ. Christ is all the fullness of God. To be filled with all the fullness of God is to be filled up with Christ, and therefore to be filled up with Christ is to be fully conformed. To his image. It is to have Christ formed in us. The labor of the apostle becomes the labor of the pastor teacher until Christ is formed in you. That's why the pastor teacher gives himself to study. That's why he buries himself in the study. That's why he doesn't spend all his time in socializing or in social media or in visiting or counseling, but in getting the word of God to make it clear so that his audience can have Christ formed in them. What, would it, what good would it do if I were to run around and visit everybody that's hurting, but I wasn't manifesting Christ in it? What good would it do if I comforted or a pastor comforted by comforting and sweet and smooth words, but he wasn't manifesting Christ? What good would it do for us to talk in all the pious platitudes to one another, but Christ is informed in any of us? What good is that? What service does that render? And so faith perceives realities. And I'm not against those things. Of course, those things happen in the, in the regular norm of life. As we walk by faith and we walk according to what God wants us to do, we'll do all kinds of stuff like that, more than we ever would have done if we sat down and put it in our daily planner. So in closing, in Isaiah 53, 1, it says again, it's partially quoted in Romans 10, 16, who has believed our report, said Isaiah. That's not the end of it. He said, and to whom is the arm of the Lord been apocalyptically exposed in power? Apocalypto, aorist passive indicative. Now, I'm going to close by saying this, and this jumps over a few things, so we might have to hit faith as perception again. Jesus is standing before Caiaphas, the, the high priest at the time. The high priest is more and more outraged until he finally says, Are you the Messiah of the living God? And Jesus said, Yes, I am. But then he said this, and all of you, meaning you, Caiaphas, and all of these people in this inquisition right here, 
will see the Son of Man coming with power and seated at the right hand of God. When would they see that? Is that out in the distance? No. That was when they all surrounded Calvary to mock him. There he was, seated at the right hand of power. Where was God's power manifested? In the crucified Christ and him risen. Where was the last judgment? In the crucified Christ, whom God raised subsequently from the dead. You will see this, all of you. But the all of you isn't just all you guys here that are in are giving me this inquisition, Caiaphas and the rest of you. I mean everybody, everywhere, all nations will see me. To see him in power is to see him crucified. He was actually seated on the cross. He was seated there, feet nailed, bent slightly, seated Because the cross is his throne of glory. The cross is the place where he separated the sheep from the goats because he separated the sinful us from the righteous and rectified us. It's the place where he saved all mankind. Faith perceives this. The Bible isn't just an interesting book. If you perceive the truths that are in the Bible by faith... You can do nothing but bend your knee in awe. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will acknowledge. And that means not just, oh, yeah, Jesus is Lord. We got to agree now. It means they will praise me in an act of pledge of absolute allegiance in the obedience of faith. All. This is the reality that faith perceives. And we see horrific things happen. It seems every time Pam and I go away, some horrific thing happens that we have to see on the news that puts a dent in our rest. And you see this and you, and you go, how horrific. But then immediately, you, some untold, contrary reality pops in. God says, I've reconciled the whole world of mankind to myself, in Jesus Christ. Do you see that reality above that other reality of this violent and horrific and horrendous and atrocious act? Do you see the atrocious and horrendous and shameful, despicable act of Calvary resulting in the resurrection of my son? Do you see that the reality that counts above all other realities and even makes the rest of them appear to be nothing is that Jesus Christ is the reality of my reconciliation of all the world of humankind to myself. Do you see? Does your eyes perceive this? If they do, you're going to be looked upon as kind of a weirdo. You may even be looked upon as someone who isn't quite caring enough because you don't invest yourselves as deeply in the sorrows of the world, which the world invests itself totally in. You invest and you invest and identify with the sorrows of the world because you're part of the sorrows of the world. But you don't grieve as those without hope, do you? 
You don't grieve as those without faith, which is the assurance of hoped for things, do you? Because then you're really not doing an honor to the creature, an honor to the human beings that you're grieving for, or an honor to the creator that made them for glory. And so thank God we have a cognitive invincibility even in the midst of our deepest griefs and sorrows. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And as we close, Father, we thank you for the privilege of health and for the privilege, Father, of stability, of mental stability. But we also thank you for the extraordinary privilege that you've allowed some to go through the loss of health. For then you can manifest your glory in weakness. Only those who know, only those who know the depths of human weakness appreciate to the maximum the height and the elevation of God's grace and kindness. Only those who have known the most poignant, piercing griefs know the comfort of the Father of all mercies. Only those, Father, who are the poor in spirit have in their experience even now the kingdom of God. Only those who are the peacemakers go forth with a ministry of reconciliation can be called in earnest and in reality the children of God. Why the children of God as peacemakers? Because God is the ultimate peacemaker who made peace by the blood of his son's cross in order to reconcile all things in the heavens and on earth to himself. Father, you've told us that our eyes are blessed to see these things. So what can we say in response to that? But thank you. And we thank you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ.